a trusted voice of truth and light. God gave me a gift. I shovel well. I shovel very well. And a rally point for those who've accepted the reality that they are not sheep. We've got a blind date with destiny. And it looks like she's ordered the lobster. This is The Brian Hyde Show. Well, hello there and welcome to the show. All right. We are now firmly in the month of January. And I mean, like, we have a week behind us now, so, you know, everything's moving along. I don't know if, uh, you know, if you paid any attention to the January 6th anniversary as it came and went, but uh, that's still a pretty big deal for a lot of folks, apparently. Boy, the official narrative fell apart like a soup sandwich actually quite some time ago for people who were paying attention, but holy cow, it's a little disturbing to see how many people still hold on for any reason to believe, no, it really was an insurrection and Trump really made it happen and they almost overthrew gag our democracy <laughs> anyway i did catch uh, the the president's speech that he gave i think it was actually the day before holy cow that was i mean i didn't live in the soviet union i've talked to people who lived in the soviet union and the the level of official dishonesty that they had to to get used to pretty much when their leaders spoke it was just understood they're they're lying through their teeth Anything that they're telling us is just, you know, to try to, to program us into this is what you're supposed to think. And and that's pretty much the same vibe that I was getting from, from Biden. I mean, he started out talking about Washington at Valley Forge and, you know, the courage and sacrifice. And then he pulled a bait and switch, you know, talking about liberty was what animated them. And then, boom, it all turned to democracy, a term which the founding generation did not use in such glowing terms. They didn't include it anywhere in the Declaration of Independence. It's nowhere to be found in the Constitution. Yet somehow that democracy, that that uh, amorphous, you know, nebulous thing out there that is supposed to be the pinnacle of human development, really it turns out to be it's just whatever the people in power want to see happen or the continuation of their their reign, you know, or their their hands on the levers of power. Anyway, fascinating stuff. If, if you haven't seen the, the film, The Death of Stalin, I'm going to tell you it's, the, the language is filthy, but I think it's a fairly accurate portrayal of the mindsets and, and the chicanery behind the scenes of all the, the, the power grubbers within the Soviet Union um, around the time that, uh, that Stalin died. And it's, it's played to great comic effect. It's kind of a dark comedy but there's an element of truth there that I think really kind of solidifies just how far wicked people are willing to go in order to gain and consolidate and, and maintain their power over others. And the craziest part to me is, you know, people will watch that movie and go, oh, yeah, yeah, it must have really sucked you know, to live in the Soviet Union. They don't see that a very similar situation is developing around us. And I think we're actually fast approaching the point where we can honestly say, yes, we have a, uh, there is a communist cultural revolution that is being enacted all around us right now. Do we think it'll have a happier ending than any of the previous uh, commie revolutions? Some people do. I'm guessing those are the people least acquainted with history, but just, just a guess. Anyway, welcome to the show. Had to get that one off my chest early on. A thanks to my sponsors, including 
quiltandsew.com, Ironsight Brewing Company, that's ironsightbc.com, also tmcpnation.com and lifesavingfood.com. So I wanted to start with a, a question about, uh, you know, the ruling class trying to con- consolidate their power over us. Here's the question. This was actually asked by Thomas Knapp. Thomas L. Knapp asks, what's in your wallet? The answer is, uh, if CBDC supporters have their way, nothing reliable. Now, you may get after me for beating on this subject a bit more, but this is one we've got to pay attention to because I don't know any other way to put it. So if this sounds hysterical, fine, it sounds hysterical. But if the ruling class is able to enact central bank digital currencies, meaning centrally controlled money, they have access to it, they can shut you off, you can become an unperson with the click of a mouse. If that happens, you will see the greatest consolidation of control and power over the populace that you've seen since the the lockdowns and all the other COVID nonsense was in full effect. Thomas L. Knapp says, In December, Reuters reports India's digital rupee crossed the milestone of more than 1 million transactions per day. Meanwhile, in early January, the European Union Central Bank published a rulebook for and Spain's Central Bank selected partners in a pilot or test program for their own Central Bank Digital Currencies, or CBDCs. In the U.S., he reports CBDCs remain at the debate stage. Now, Thomas points out here, governments around the world don't like cryptocurrency very much, but they do like two things about it. First, they like that Bitcoin, Ether, and other cryptocurrencies have popularized the next step of taking money into a completely digital paradigm. Not just credit or debit cards, rather, linked to bank accounts, in turn to in turn linked to theoretical dollars, euros, etc., but doing away with cash money, paper bills, and metal coins entirely. Secondly, he says they like the idea that the average Joe may assume that CBDCs are just another kind of cryptocurrency tied to some or tied to secure, immutable blockchains and with at least some privacy baked into transactions. Transactions, rather. Thomas L. Knapp says to put it as succinctly as possible, no. CBDCs aren't cryptocurrencies. They're the digital opposite of cryptocurrencies in important respects. In fact, he says their main function is to serve as instruments of control over you, your activities, and your finances. Less succinctly, if you hold Bitcoin in a non-custodial wallet, that is, a wallet you and no one else holds the cryptographic keys to, your account balance is secure. The transactions you enter into are irreversible, and anyone wanting to know who owns that wallet has to have more than the wallet address to find out. Bitcoin is not inherently anonymous in commerce. If you buy something that has to be delivered with your Bitcoin, for example, someone will know who you are and where you live. But it's not immediately apparent to any centralized or authoritative third party. Now, a CBDC will be operated by a government or government proxy, and every last red cent you receive or spend will be instantly traceable to you, and more importantly, instantly takeable from you. So suppose, for example, that you're a mechanic and accept CBDC dollars to work on someone's Corvette. If the government decides that your customer is a drug dealer and resolves to confiscate everything he's ever touched in an asset forfeiture action, the money you received can be instantly seized from your account. Or suppose you say something in public that the government dislikes and it decides to freeze your assets while it investigates you to grab a current news hook for material support of Hamas. It's a lot easier to freeze CBDC funds 
with pretty much literally a computer keystroke than to get hold of the coffee can full of gold Krugerrands you buried at your secret spot in Mark Twain National Forest. He says central banks are not your friends, and their CBDC schemes are intended to increase their power over you, not enhance your ability to earn, save, and spend money. At the political level, register your resistance as best you can. At the financial level, he says, consider moving your finances into areas beyond their control. Amen, brother. That's, he's right. And I know it sounds like, well, there's such a radical thing to even have to consider. It is. But it's not like you and I came up with it just out of the blue saying, well, you know, we should probably, you know, the, the, the banking system is so stable and so responsive and so, you know, not prone to abuse. Right, Canadian truckers? Why don't we think about taking our money and putting it or our wealth somewhere where it's out of reach of sticky little fingers that want to get their hands on it or or prying eyes that want to track every bit of it? Yeah. Yeah, that was forced on us by people who are determined to gain as much control as possible. And the crazy thing about it is they're still very likely to succeed, not because it's such a great idea, but because there are probably enough people who can be seduced by the idea of, oh, but it's so convenient. I mean, look, I don't even have to carry a card anymore. They just put this chip in the back of my hand and I just wave it over the scanner and everything's cool. Now that assumes that, you know, you're going to be obedient. You're not going to be a problem child. There's not going to be something put upon you at some point where you say, whoa, I can't do that. Or no, I'm not interested in going along with that. Because when that day comes, that's the day when you find out how easy it is to become an unperson. I'm sorry, Mr. Hyde, but your your uh, money no longer works here. Or we show that you have zero uh, credits in your account. Or you can't buy those items. Why? Well, because uh, presumably they're going to be, you know, they're going to be dangerous or they're somehow harming the environment. I mean, the the list of possibilities is endless. But it all starts with giving absolute control in the form of central bank digital currencies, which are going to be sold to us based on the convenience. Think before you leap. Don't agree to something that you don't understand or don't explicitly, you don't know where it's going to lead. Does that still sound paranoid? Sorry. I've tried to make it as palatable as I can. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. So I'm going to take a moment here, and and even though, I, again, I, I feel bad for beating the January 6th uh, dead horse, I did want to share some insights from a writer by the name of Michael Herman. I recommend you subscribe to his Substack. It's actually a very good Substack. Michael's uh, Michael's a pretty prolific writer, too. I think it's, it's pretty much every day he's, he's cranking out another article. His one on belief in reality about destroying the village to save the village is a must-read for anybody trying to keep their sanity in an era where, you know, the January 6th narrative is being pounded into our heads from every direction. Now, Michael just cuts right to the chase. He says, if you are still of the opinion 
that January 6th was an insurrection and think that MAGA participants murdered a few Capitol Police that day and that Trump was complicit, he says there is no hope for you. All of your critical thinking skills are gone. No one's doing a better work in questioning the mainstream narrative on January 6th than Jimmy Dore. And he actually uh, he gives you a few clips in the body of this article from Jimmy Dore's program. Now, I would add to it, Julie Kelly is, is also an absolute national treasure in terms of the content she has been writing about regarding January 6th. But back to Michael Herman's article, he says, To anyone with a brain capable of critical thought, it is clear as day that January 6th was the Whitmer kidnapping plot writ large a giant FBI operation to entrap MAGA participants and frame them as the biggest terrorist threat to our nation. There were hundreds, if not thousands, of government agency plants, informants, employees who did everything they could to stir the crowd to action. They baited the MAGA crowd to enter the Capitol building. And as Jimmy Dore says, this is the only insurrection where the participants forgot to bring their guns. And if you stereotype the MAGA crowd over anything, it is gun ownership. You can bet they have them. So if this was some planned insurrection, wouldn't the MAGA crowd have brought their guns? Nancy Pelosi put on a show trial, even hired Hollywood executives to assist with the production for television in an arrangement that would have made 1950s communists in Russia proud. Jimmy Dore points out that Tucker Carlson, one of the early viewers of the full tapes on January 6th, knew immediately that the Democrats and mainstream media had pushed a false narrative. Michael says, now sitting out here in middle-class America, knowing that we have forces aligned in our government that include the DNC, FBI, CIA, and Justice Department, all working together pretty much criminalized to, to pretty much criminalize the opposition party, well, he says it's just astounding. Innocent men and women have received jail sentences in the democratically controlled D.C. courts, a D.C. that, can, that votes 90% Democratic, a D.C. with a majority black population where BLM is still extremely popular, and DEI and CRT are religions. There are MAGA participants from January 6th serving serious jail sentences for the crime of walking through the people's house. And he points out the only death that day was poor Ashley Babbitt at the hands of a Capitol policeman who, by the way, it turned out lied as shown by the radio traffic prior to him shooting Ashley Babbitt, claiming that he was being shot at when in fact he wasn't. By the way, just a, another quick aside. Did you notice where a, a U.S. attorney was, was saying, um, I forget the guy's name, I'll have, to, I'll have to look it up. He was saying last week, now they are looking to go after anybody who entered any space that they did not have permission to be in. In other words, even if you didn't go into the Capitol, if you stepped, if they can show, well, you stepped, you know, in, in this area where there was fencing or something, you are going to be sought to, for, you're going to be sought after, and presumably they're going to send an FBI SWAT team to arrest you. Gee, that kind of sounds like uh, somebody's ramping up the roundup that takes us in a very different and dangerous direction now doesn't it back to michael herman's commentary he says our fellow american citizens are sitting in a dc jail cell for years for allowing themselves to be baited into breaching the barriers and peacefully entering the capitol building baited by literally hundreds and hundreds of feds whose aim was to criminalize members of the republican party as extremists actual terrorists who are a threat to our nation 
Now, he says, once you realize this, you know, as fact, because you have a working brain, you aren't easily fooled. You don't just read the Washington Post and believe everything they print. You don't just watch MSNBC with the walls closing in and sit still waiting for them to close in. You realize that we have a permanent bureaucracy in Washington, D.C. that is unelected, is extremely powerful, and has decided that they, not the American people, will decide our future. How can any American hear Brennan and Clapper, former CIA and DNI directors, go on television after leaving office and be so extremely partisan and not become concerned that they saw it as part of their mission in government to work for one party and to destroy the other? How can anyone not be extremely concerned that the Democratic Party has been taken over by the worst humans alive? A Hillary Clinton that rigged primaries against her opponents with superdelegates and other underhanded shenanigans? And a Nancy Pelosi who had the Capitol Police stand down on January 6th to allow for her, the FBI, Justice Department, and other governmental agencies to work a giant Whitmer kidnapping false flag operation against their political opponents. And they were smart enough to stage their stooge, President Joe Biden, to go on stage draped in spooky, eerie, scary colors to really gin up fear in the American people and tell them that MAGA extremists are the greatest terrorist threat to our nation. His point is, all of this has been scripted by what is considered the deep state in permanent Washington, D.C., planned, every bit as was the Whitmer kidnapping plot. How, how anyone on earth could sit there and support a party that's aligned with permanent Washington, D.C. to criminalize the opposition party and work with an unelected bureaucracy to govern our nation, the will of the people be damned. Well, these people are so far gone, so mentally addled, so unquestionably brainwashed, they are all Rob Reiner, a former 1960s liberal holding placards saying, don't trust the establishment, who 60 years later are the biggest supporters of the deep state and permanent Washington, D.C. Think about that. From never trust anyone over 30 to Democrats are the savior of our nation. The same Democrats who rigged the Democratic primary, and it's not some right-wing keyboard nut in Florida saying this. Read Donna Brazile's book. The same Democrats who created Russiagate. The same Democrats who are trying to rig the 2024 elections by keeping their number one opponent off the ballot. How funny is it that a man known as Meathead in his most famous role some 50 years ago has come full circle to being brain dead in real life? How exactly does one do a podcast exposing the CIA for participating in the execution of JFK and yet turn around today in full-throated support of the deep state and the CIA who's working overtime right now to subvert our democracy on behalf of the Democrats? How could someone be so obtuse as to not see the ironies? Michael Herman says, some on my side say if we don't get this next election right in 2024, that it's all over. He says, good heavens, there are MAGA Trump supporters rotting in a D.C. jail right now on false charges. How is it not all over right now? What's the difference between you or me and them? They cared more, so they went to Washington, D.C. and got caught up in a sting operation. They decided to become activists for our cause, and now they have to sit in jail on some false BS Democrat operation. In some ways, he says, they were our most fervent support. Our leaders, our front line, and we allowed them to be jailed like animals on false charges. Obama and company ruined patriot Michael Flynn's life, and he sleeps well at night. Now Obama, Nancy and company have ruined dozens of lives who went to the Capitol that day to exercise their rights of free speech. Hey, we all cling to our guns and religion a bit too much. 
But he says, in the face of these tremendous and horrible actions by the DNC, leaders of the Democratic Party and the deep state, you and I just sit. Door rails, Tucker rails, but in the end, they've won. The people still sit in jail. Nancy is still in power. Horrible, awful criminals, real criminals, are in actual power. And he says, and we sit powerless. Now, he's not telling us to give up. But he says, wake up. Things are pretty far gone. And he says, I'm not sure if we can get it back. My fellow Americans rot in a jail for the crime of being patriotic. What are we going to do about it? I can't answer that question. But it's something you should be thinking through. This is The Brian Hyde Show. This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back to the show. Thanks again to those of you who subscribe to my daily show notes. You know, it's it's a free service, so it's not like you're making me rich by doing this, but I do appreciate it because I know it gives you the opportunity to share some of the articles or share the website of the various people that I get a chance to talk to, and, and I appreciate that. So if you'd like to subscribe, go to my website, thebrianhydeshow.com. You can sign up there. It doesn't cost you anything. All it's going to ask for is your email, which I promise I will not share, sell, or otherwise lend to anybody. So it's impossible to make an effective stand for liberty if you run on enemy-driven thinking. Now, you may be saying, now, Brian, weren't you just telling us, though, that the deep state and various actors in Washington, D.C. are are acting as our enemies? And yes, I am. But again, I'm not encouraging you to make the focus of your life to determine who is your enemy or to determine, you know, um, who you need to hate. Uh, I think about Lavoy Finnicum's brother, Guy Finnicum, several years ago. Was, in fact, it was right in the aftermath after Lavoy had been killed up in, uh, in Oregon. And I remember his brother speaking at a public event in Cedar City, Utah. And he made a comment that to me has rung very true over the, the years since then. And that is, yes, we need to be aware of what's going on. And I would agree. And I want to raise awareness. You know, people don't buy into the central bank digital currency. Don't buy into, you know, the narrative that's being pushed at you. But at the same time, we need to be focusing more on the, the good things and, and the, the things that we stand for. I guess the, the best way to put it is, it's far better to be known what you stand for than simply what or who you're against. And Barry Brownstein has an excellent essay on this very subject. You can't find your innocence by hating others. Barry says, Shelby Steele is a famed author on race relations and a senior fellow at the Hoover Institution. He and his son Eli recently sat for a conversation on race, innocence, and power at the City Journal. Eli Steele opined that woke ideology is an almost perverted battle for innocence. Shelby Steele added, so much of our politics and culture really come out of this struggle with innocence. Wokeness is nothing more or less than this struggle for innocence, a way to be innocent and therefore to have power. This leads to dark things. Do you understand what he's saying here? Barry says, Shelby Steele observed the left claims its politics have more innocence than yours, and on that basis, they seek power over others. Shelby Steele used affirmative action as an example of how the power they deploy leads to evil. 
saying, you're saying this person gets into school and this person doesn't because of the color of their skin. And that is diversity. That is inclusiveness. Evil is everywhere waiting around the corner, advocating for itself as a moral convenience that will make you a better person. So you become a cheerleader for evil, thinking you're helping. End quote. Now, Shelby Steele believes psychological analysis is necessary to understand the divisiveness he sees in America. Although Carl Jung isn't referenced in the interview, there is no better lens than Jung's to understand the phenomenon of evil masquerading as good that both Steeles currently bring to our awareness. In The Undiscovered Self, Jung revealed that those cheerleading for evil are often unaware of what they are doing. Since it is universally believed that man is merely what his consciousness knows of itself, he regards himself as harmless, and so adds stupidity to iniquity. He does not deny that terrible things have happened and still go on happening, but it is always the others who do them. Barry says each of us has character flaws and limitations and a capacity for evil that we may not yet be willing to see in ourselves. General feelings of unease, distress, and angst have their source in these human weaknesses. To rid ourselves of these feelings, we see in others the defects that we are unwilling to see in ourselves. This attempt to dump our psychological trash on others is part of the phenomenon of projection. Jung observed, only the fool can permanently disregard the conditions of his own nature. In fact, this negligence is the best means of making him an instrument of evil. Harmlessness and naivete are as, as little helpful as it would be for a cholera patient and those in his vicinity to remain unconscious of the contagiousness of the disease. So Barry says, closing our eyes to what lies within our nature, Jung explained that that leads to projection of the unrecognized evil into the other. What's even worse, our lack of insight deprives us of the capacity to deal with evil. In his Man and His Symbols, Carl Jung quotes Hitler describing Churchill, quote, For over five years, this man has been chasing around Europe like a madman in search of something he could set on fire. Unfortunately, he again and again finds hirelings who open the gates of their country to this international incendiary. Now, Jung wrote, Projections change the world into the re replica of one's own unknown face. Hitler saw in Churchill the evil he had buried deep in himself. So let's see how we project. Perhaps you've played both parts in the following scenario. You're driving down the highway and another driver has committed, under your rules, an infraction. Perhaps he cuts you off or he's merely driving too slowly. Notice how you glare at the other driver as you pass? Why the glare? You want to believe the source of your anger and hatred is outside yourself, and so you will not look within at your own character. You want to pretend that you're innocent, a victim of an inconsiderate person. If your emotion is not specifically directed at the other, you might see your anger and hatred come from you. As long as you try to get rid of something you are unwilling to look at, you will double down ad infinitum. You will keep looking for an opportunity to eliminate the guilt you are building up by falsely attributing your emotions to other people. You will justify your judgment of the other. For the most emotionally immature, road rage could be the outcome. On a societal level, the emotionally immature join in mass movements that utilize group hatred. Yet you can't find your innocence by projecting your guilt onto other people or groups. Ooh, that needs to be a bumper sticker. That's, that's a great, great line. Jung writes in The Undiscovered Self, Nothing has a more diverse, divisive rather and alienating effect upon society than this moral complacency and lack of responsibility. 
and nothing promotes understanding and reproachment rather than the mutual withdrawal of projections. He then offers us a way to take back our projections. Quote, this necessary corrective demands self-criticism, for one cannot just tell the other person to withdraw their projections. He does not recognize them for what they are any more than one does oneself. We can recognize our prejudices and illusions only when from a broader psychological knowledge of ourselves and others, we are prepared to doubt the absolute rightness of our assumptions and compare them carefully and conscientiously with the objective facts. End quote. Now, Young was a fierce critic of communism. He explained the self-criticism he advocated has nothing to do with what's encouraged in totalitarian societies. Quote, funnily enough, self-criticism is an idea much in vogue in Marxist countries, but there it is subordinated to ideological considerations and must serve the state, and not truth and justice in men's dealings with one another. The mass state has no intention of promoting mutual understanding. And the relationship of man to man, it strives rather for atomization, for the psychic isolation of the individual. The more unrelated individuals are, the more consolidated the state becomes, and vice versa. End quote. So, love of humanity, Jung explained, is only possible when we do the inner work of becoming aware of our projections. Jung says, it is just this love for one's fellow man that suffers most from all the lack of understanding wrought by projection. It would therefore be very much in the interest of the free society to give some thought to the question of human relationship from the psychological point of view. For in this resides real co- its real cohesion and consequently its strength. Where love stops, power begins, and violence and terror. Now, Barry says the alternative to this inner work, as the Steels point out, is doing irrational things in adherence to a collectivist ideology that followers believe establishes their innocence. From those whose minds are, in Jung's words, possessed by irrational prejudices, projections, and childish illusions, we can expect more expressions of anger and hatred. Jung cautions that those who are driven blindly by their projections are more likely to submit absolutely to a collective belief and renounce their eternal right to freedom. And he wraps it up by saying, liberty, lo- liberty lovers rather, can promote freedom by working to drop their projections. Innocence is not a zero-sum game. We are free to live in peace as long as we don't transgress against others. In a free society, we seek to cooperate with others rather than making the lives of others worse. Amen. That is, that's classic. Barry Brownstein right there. You really should consider subscribing to his Mind Shifts or Mindset Shifts substack. It's really quite remarkable. I've got a link to his essay in uh, today's show notes at thebrianhydeshow.com. These are the show notes for January 8th, 2024. Now, when we come back, I'm going to spend a little bit of time, uh, going to share with you a quick review of the uh, the movie produced by Barack Obama. I believe it was Barack and Michelle, uh, Leave the World Behind. I did watch this a couple of weeks ago. Um, yeah, it was okay. But there's an underlying message there that's, is just a little bit disturbing. And and in fact, really seems to be kind of predictive programming and getting us set for a major cyber attack against the internet. Also, we're going to talk about why the real difference makers don't get celebrated all that often. But that's not necessarily a bad thing. This is The Brian Hyde Show. 
This is The Brian Hyde Show. All right, welcome back. It's the final segment of the show today. And let's jump right to our article of the day. This is from Brandon Smith from alt-market.us. Strongly recommend Brandon's writings. This guy's got a really keen sense of what's going on. He's very good at uh, connecting the dots. And as far as the apocalyptic movie, Leave the World Behind, Brandon nails it. He says, you know, this, this weird new movie plays up America's extreme vulnerability to cyber attack. He says, there's been a lot of buzz lately about a recently released film by Netflix titled Leave the World Behind based on a novel by the same name. Now, the plot revolves around a catastrophic collapse in the U.S. triggered by a cyber attack and mass drone attack that shuts down the Internet and disrupts the global economy, leading to questions of who might have been behind the sabotage. Now, the most interesting aspect of the film is not so much the story, which is lackluster at best, but the fact that Barack Obama was so deeply involved in the making of the film as executive producer and as advisor on the script. This has led many people to suggest the movie is actually predictive programming, propaganda designed to acclimate the masses to the idea of an event that's planned to happen in the near future. Similar concerns were raised back in 2021 when the World Economic Forum oversaw a war game called Cyber Polygon, an event meant to simulate a massive cyber attack on the vulnerable functions of the World Wide Web. The reason Cyber Polygon raised so many eyebrows was perfectly understandable. The World Economic Forum had hosted another simulation at the end of 2019 called Event 201. That game, which included the CEOs of some of the most powerful health and media organizations or corporations, rather, in the world, along with numerous government officials, coincidentally focused on the outbreak of a global coronavirus pandemic. And it was held just a couple of months before the real thing happened. In other words, it was as if the globalists at the World Economic Forum knew that COVID was about to strike. Have to say they do kind of sometimes, they, the people in power, and that includes elected as well as unelected people, they do have a tendency to want to kind of tip their hand, whether that's to, to flex or whether that's just, you know, we gave you fair warning. Anyway, Brandon says, while Hollywood interpretations of cyber attacks are usually exaggerated in terms of the true effects, there is a very real and considerable threat associated with such a disaster. So-called experts in the tech field often dismiss the wider dangers to the Internet itself because they've been indoctrinated into believing that the design of the web has too many redundancies. In other words, they act like it's invincible. But he says that's not really the case. Though data loss can be prevented through cloud storage, the Internet as a mechanism can still be shut down or taken down deliberately for long periods of time. Now, this is where I'm going to pump the brakes and say, I want you to check out the article. It's, it's detailed. It's fairly lengthy. But Brandon makes a lot of sense. And by the way, his solution. So what if, what if this is, you know, a harbinger of something that is to come? Well, he says the solution is pretty straightforward. Localization of trade and production is the way to prevent full spectrum collapse. And alternative communication methods like, or networks like ham radio networks can prevent information silence. There's no reason why Americans should have to become subservient to the whims of globalism. The interdependent supply chain or even digitization. They can and should create their own backup plan. 
Getting people to realize this and implement basic local measures is where we run into difficulties. He says, sadly, a lot of first world citizens assume that the system will always be there for them when they need it. They don't actively seek out solutions until disasters at their doorstep. So I would agree this is a good time to say, okay, but what if? What if something like this were to happen? What could we do? This is where you'd want to have a plan in place beforehand rather than waiting until that moment of crisis and then trying to sort it out when people are actually panicking. All right, and I want to shift to one final subject here. We're going to end on a little bit higher note. Why is it so many people believe that institutional solutions are the only legitimate solutions? We don't hear a lot about the real problem solvers in the world. You know, it's it's doubtful, in fact, if you think about it, I don't think there's been a commencement speech given in the last hundred years that hasn't incorporated some variation of change the world. By the way, I've been a commencement speaker too, and that I've definitely included that idea. But But here, the problem is with most world changers is that they've been trained to believe the only changes that are going to count are going to come through public policy. This is why so many young idealists want to get into politics. They see that as the most likely way to change the world. And it's not that there isn't real need for positive changes. The problem is that any change undertaken by politicians or other agents of the state is based at some level in the need to coerce others to behave in a way that someone else thinks they should behave. That's the natural product that's achieved when a lust for power is multiplied by the mass desire for an instant society-wide result. This is where change agents tend to become household names, but for all the wrong reasons. Their arrogant reliance upon force transforms into what might have been benef- what might have been beneficial rather into destructive social engineering. Seen quite a bit of that these days, aren't we? Donald Boudreau of George Mason University says, no such change, no matter how well-intentioned the change agent, will be for the better. Beneficial efforts to change the world are almost always small, incremental, and performed in the voluntary sector of society, in the market, in families, in civil society, not in or through the state. He's right, by the way. So instead of stumping for, inter- for institutional solutions implemented by someone in a position of authority, we should become problem solvers on a purely individual level. Now, this is not just being pragmatic, saying that's going to solve the most problems. It also does wonders to give you a better worldview because you realize the world is not some place where you're just helpless and at its mercy. But that's a pretty hard thing to sell to people that have been trained to see political solutions to everything that troubles them. It's very difficult to, to visualize it. So I'll give you an example of what this looks like. My friend Colby, a few years ago, went to grab some lunch at a local burger joint. But when he went to pay for his order, he realized he didn't have his debit card with him. I mean, we've all been there, right? When he realized his mistake, Colby told the young woman across the counter, go ahead and cancel my order. But to his surprise, she insisted on putting his lunch on her tab. In fact, there was no hesitation on her part to buy his lunch, even though she'd never met him before. Now, that generosity was simply a part of the young woman's character. But it impressed Colby so much that he went back to that restaurant a few days later and put $40 on that young woman's tab so she could continue to help others who might be in need. See, the only thing required to solve an immediate problem was a person who recognized the need and possessed enough love for her fellow man to act on it. 
She didn't have to solve the problem of world hunger to have played a positive role in changing the world for the better. And millions of people who share her willingness to love their fellow man carry out similar unacknowledged improvements in the lives of others without any recognition whatsoever. In fact, the only reason you're hearing about this young woman today is because I felt like that was an example worth recognizing as proof that even small acts of humanity make a genuine difference. Now, we actually brought this up at the time on my radio show in southern Utah, and it was interesting how immediately people started voicing concerns. Well, now, there might be some legalities about creating a tab at somebody's business that might encourage more neediness. In other words, this might feed, you know, uh, people who want a handout. And those fears reflected the social conditioning to which we've been subjected, which trains us to think that only institutional solutions can be legitimate. But that's a widely believed falsehood. The concept of loving your neighbor isn't about just passively radiating good feelings at every passerby. It's about taking action on an individual level whenever we encounter another person whose need we recognize. Recognition and accolades, that's not what we're going for. It's about meeting that person's need, whether it's a few bucks for gas or a meal or maybe even just a kind word that lifts their spirits. You notice none of those things require specialized training or vast wealth or superhuman powers of observation. They just require an individual who recognizes the intrinsic value of each and every person and will not allow another to be oppressed while in their presence. That requires being able to see beyond those artificial groupings and tribal designations by which we tend to pigeonhole others. So yeah, quiet selfless deeds, they may not move the needle of public awareness. It's not like the TV station's going to send a news crew, but that doesn't mean that these are wasted. In fact, I'm encouraging you, put this to the test for yourself. Don't take my word for it. Don't take anybody else's word. Just keep an open mind regarding this concept concept long enough to go and try it for yourself. And this is what I mean. Try to recognize an immediate need in someone near you. And it doesn't matter how small. And then take the personal action to help them. And as you do, see if your view of the world doesn't change for the better. It really is that simple. Though we've all been trained to think, no, 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 it's got to be much more complicated or it's just not legitimate. Again, I'm just asking, please try it. Notice somebody's need, take action and help them and see if it doesn't improve how you see the world. It'll also improve how you see yourself because you are being a source of good. This is The Brian Hyde Show.